Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Before I get into the sermon, I'm going to give you a warning, a warning, because I'm going to need some volunteers this morning. It's one of those sermons, all right? And volunteers, they make it fun, all right? Now, here's the, here's the deal. I don't need them right away, but I will need them eventually, and I didn't ask anybody ahead of time. I thought I'd try this different this time and just ask you to, if someone would volunteer and help me. I actually need eight people, eight. That's a lot of volunteers, right? It's going to be empty out there, and everybody's going to be up front by the time I'm done. Um, so I'm going to start getting into the message here, but you think about whether or not you're willing to come up here. And I'll tell you, all you got to do is stand here. You don't even have to say anything or walk around. So it's going to be the easiest volunteering ever, all right? Uh, last week, we began a new series called Kingdom, all right? We're going through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, specifically looking at Scripture where Jesus talks about the kingdom. Jesus tells these stories called parables, and, and you may wonder, why is kingdom an important thing to talk about? Well, because these parables, Jesus is giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. When he talks about the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, well, he's trying to tell us there's something about what I'm about to, the story I'm about to tell you that gives you a picture of what the kingdom looks like. So we're not talking about mustard seed this morning. I saved that. We're talking about other seeds this morning, okay? So we're going to look at a couple of different um, parables this morning about seeds, and we're going to see what is the picture that Jesus is trying to paint for us of what it looks like when the king rules the kingdom, when the king rules our life, when the kingdom is at play because of the way that we live. The Brethren in Christ Church. I am very passionate about the Brethren in Christ Church, which is good because I'm at a Brethren in Christ Church, right? But I'm like a long-time BIC guy. So I was raised in the BIC, and my parents were ra- my dad was raised in the BIC, and he, his dad was raised in the BIC. So kind of like the natural things get passed down to you when you're not meaning to. So I'm really passionate about the Brethren in Christ. Um, the Brethren in Christ would consider themselves to be a people of the kingdom, Right? That's a term that has gotten used before to describe this denomination of people, a people of the kingdom. And that means two really primary things to me. One, we're concerned about the kingdom. And two, our lives reflect the kingdom. Okay? Now, I'll talk about both of these. So first, we're concerned about the kingdom. It's really, really easy for a person or a church or denomination of churches to be extremely concerned about themselves. We get wrapped up in us. We get caught up in our personal failures and our personal successes. We can get stuck in the fact that, you know, our church is good at this or it's bad at this, and we don't any further than that. We can think a lot about the denomination and think, well, our denomination believes this and it's better than your denomination because you believe that. We can get really concerned with that stuff, and it makes sense that we get concerned with it because... That's something that we're raised in often. If you've been a part of the church for a long time, there is some sort of weird competition thing with other churches out there. And it's unfortunate because that's not kingdom-oriented. Okay? Um, I think it's totally possible 
that you can talk to people who believe different things than you. Maybe you're talking to somebody and they're telling you about baptism at their church and they baptize one time backward. And you're like, huh, our church does like three times backwards. Well, that's okay. That's all right. You're, you're good. Your baptism doesn't mean less because it was one time and mine was three times, right? We can sit at the same table. We can sit at the table with people and we say, look, I'm nonviolent. I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in violence. And somebody else sits down with me and they say, well, I believe in a right to defend myself. And I think I can sit at that same table and say, you know what? doesn't mean you love Jesus less. We have a different understanding of some stuff, but that's okay. That's, that's kingdom orientation. When we can pay attention to the big values, the things that we may not necessarily agree in, but we can sit down at the same table. A kingdom orientation means that we're thinking about more than just us. You know, there's a story in the history of Kanoi, Brother of Christ Church, back before we had um, full-time pastors, we had some part-time people in the congregation who would become ordained, and they would fill in and take turns giving the sermons, things like that. And one such young man apparently was a very good, good preacher. He had a lot of potential. And there was another brother in Christ church not too far away that wanted to hire him as their pastor. It would have been really easy for this young man to just take that job. Oh, sure, yeah, that's like my dream. I want to be a pastor, so yeah, I'll take the job. Instead, what he does is he comes back to this church, and he sits down with this community of people, and he says, hey, somebody offered me this thing, but I want to bring it to the table. What do you guys think of this? Uh, do you think I'm ready for that? I want to know for real. If I, if I go and do this, am I leaving you guys with a problem? You know, because you only have so many other ministers. He comes here and he asks for information. He asks for the community to be involved in the decision. And then the community is able to say, no, with our blessing, go pastor that church. That's what it means to be concerned more than just with yourself. It's a kingdom orientation. Uh, there's an author named Donald Miller, and he says, you are the story of a tree in a forest. And the story of the forest is more important than the story of the tree. Kingdom people pay attention to how God is moving in the big picture. Now our lives, number two, our lives reflect the kingdom. I think, I mean, I, this is probably the one that I'm more passionate about because I think this is a really big deal. I think when we claim to be something and then we live in a way that shows that we're not that, it creates a really big problem, all right? So if we claim to be people who are concerned about the kingdom, but we're not, we're giving a false impression of what it means to be a kingdom person. Do you understand? The brethren in Christ would claim to be a people of a third way. And I, that may be a term you've heard before. Maybe it's not a term you've heard before. But I'll, I'll put it in this perspective. We live in what might be the most polarized era. And there's people out here that have lived a lot longer than me. So you could tell me maybe this is not the most polarizing era that you've lived in. It certainly is for me. It doesn't take much. You mentioned a couple things. Mention politics. Mention Abortion, gay marriage. There's a couple of key things you can mention and you can watch people go, there's no middle ground. It's one side, it's the other side. And we're gonna hurl hate toward each other because we don't agree. A third way looks for a way to approach a problem that is not this or that. When this or that doesn't reflect the heart of Christ, a people who are kingdom-oriented need to look for a third way to talk about things, a third way to act, a third way to talk, a third way to, to love one another. 
the brother in Christ are a third way people. I want to tell you a story about that, but in order to tell you a story about that, I want to give you a history lesson, and that's where I need my volunteers, all right? So we're at that spot now. I need eight volunteers. Who's willing to come up? And if you're willing, I just need to go to this window over here, all right? I need eight people. Oh, this is good. It's happening. It's happening. So excited. Okay. So... You guys are so awesome. I'm so excited. Okay. I'm going to give you a visual of church history a little bit. Okay? I'm talking about the brother in Christ. Well, thank you. I appreciate you still coming up, man. <laughs> it's amazing. We got more than we needed. Yes. Okay. We're talking about the brethren of Christ. I'm passionate about the brethren of Christ. This church is a brethren of Christ church, but I think a lot of us sit in the room, we hear these words, we don't know where the brethren of Christ came from. I want to tell you this story about a third way sort of person, and he comes somewhere in the timeline, so I'm going to give you a visual representation. All right, so, be my first volunteer? You can just come right here. You're going to be my first. It's okay. I won't bite. Hard. Okay. Um, For the first thousand years after Jesus comes, and Jesus begins his church. The church stays together. We have these um, church leaders who get together and they work out beliefs and practices for the church at large. And that seems to work for a long time. And in the year 1054, something happens called the Great Schism. And we have the church split into two bodies now. All right? You have the Orthodox Church. You're going to be in representation of the Orthodox Church. And then... That's okay. You don't have to do anything. You're just that thing for me, okay? So we have the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. We break into two pieces, all right? So Orthodox Church. About 500 years later, I need another volunteer, we meet this Catholic priest. Uh, his name is Martin Luther, all right? And he has these 95 ideas, these 95 theses Um, problems that he has with the Catholic Church. And he writes them down on a piece of paper, and legend has it, he takes that piece of paper and nails it to the door of the church in the center of his town. This kind of begins something that we call the Protestant Reformation. Okay? So this is 1054, 1517, 1517, the Protestant Reformation. Okay? Next volunteer. About less than 10 years after that, so we have our Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church is going, we have our are Lutherans now. They take Martin Luther's name. They call themselves the Lutherans. About 10 years later, we have the very first Anabaptists show up, okay? And so we have the very first confession of faith, I think, in 1526. And a group of men and women, men and women, I want to make sure that's very clear here, okay? Men and women get together. They're reading scripture, and they say, you know what? I think there's a couple of things that we need to change about the way church is being done. And one of the primary ones is that the, the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and the Lutherans baptize infants. And the Anabaptists say, we think that you should believe in Jesus before you are baptized. And so Anabaptist means to be rebaptized, rebaptizers. So this group of men and women get together, they come to this conclusion, and they baptize one another. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But they become enemies of the Lutherans and the Catholics. The Lutherans and the Catholics will kill them for a long time because of these beliefs, all right? Another volunteer, 1537, six, 36, okay. 10 years later, a guy, another Roman Catholic priest named Menno Simons, 
he has kind of this spiritual awakening, and it's because his brother is killed in a, in a big battle. It's really the start of the stuff that's going on inside of his heart. And he decides to leave the Roman Catholic Church, and he kind of casts his lot with these Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists, he's such a leader among them that a, a big group of Anabaptists will take his name, and they call themselves the Mennonites. That's where the Mennonites come from. Another volunteer. Um, over the next, I'm, you can put the next one up for me, remind me, okay. So the next 100 years, 150 years, we have a massive amount of immigration of people who are looking to have religious freedom, right? So they, they leave where they're at and they come to America, to this place where you can be who you are. You can worship the God in the way you want to worship him and no one is going to kill you anymore. And they come to America and they land on the shores and they start to kind of migrate to places like Philadelphia, Right? Not too far from Philadelphia, places like Strasbourg. We see the Mennonites kind of branching out. Another volunteer. We get to the year 1770s. And there's a group of Mennonites who have, you know, they've lived in Strasbourg or Philadelphia. They've migrated this direction toward us. I mean, really towards us because just a few miles away at the Susquehanna River, a little river that no one's ever heard of before. There's a group of Mennonites who are gathering together and they're reading scripture and they come to some conclusions. They say, you know what? One, we think that the Bible needs to play a more central role to our faith than it has played before. We really need to be people of the word. And they say, you know what? We need to baptize three times. One for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So no longer just one immersion, it's now tri-immersion. And they call themselves... The River Brethren, okay? The River Brethren. They started just a few miles down the road along the Susquehanna River. One more volunteer. During the American Civil War, there are men who are being conscripted into the army. And they say, look, I'm a pacifist. You put a rifle in my hand, fine, but... I'm not going to use it on anybody, right? They don't want to be in there because they're not going to be able to do what they're supposed to do as being a part of the army. They want to kind of stay out of that. So the government says, all right, well, you guys need a, a new name. You have to register with the government as someone who doesn't believe in this so that you can stay out of the army, out of the services. And so in the 1860s, the brethren in Christ are born. They register not as the river brethren, but as the brethren in Christ, all right? Last volunteer? So 1860s, Brother Christ is born, and here's the beautiful thing. 1887, Kanoi, Brother in Christ Church, is built right out there, right next to the road, a little white building. This is how Kanoi has come to be, all of the history, all the way back to the day of Jesus. There's all these moments in history that have led us to this point, all of these different understandings of how Scripture works. This is where the Brother in Christ has come from. Okay, does it make sense, yeah? All right, thank you for our volunteers. You can sit down. Now the story that I wanted to tell you. The story is of a guy named Dirk. Maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe Dirk is not a name, you've, a name that you're familiar with. Somewhere before the Mennonites, before Menno Simons, after the Anabaptists, there's a guy named Dirk, and he's an Anabaptist. He believes wholeheartedly that people should be baptized after they believe. And he's in his house with a bunch of people. He begins to baptize them, and the authorities find out. They arrest him. They put him in prison, and they tell him, hey, 
It's a death sentence. We're going to kill you for this. While he's in prison, he has a bunch of towels and sheets and things like that, and he ties them together and makes a big rope. Right? It, sounds like a, it sounds like a movie. He throws it out the window. He lowers himself down from the window, and he takes off running. It's a snowy, snowy night. One guard sees him. The guard gives chase. And I don't know what Dirk looked like. I'm thinking he's a smaller guy. And the guard was a guy probably my size. And Dirk's running through the snow, and he cuts across a frozen lake. The guard follows him across the lake. Dirk makes it to the other side, but the guard falls through the ice. He's floundering in the water. Mind you, this is the 1500s. If he stays in the water too long, he's going to die. He's calling out for help. Help. Please help. Help. Anybody help. Who hears him? Dirk. Dirk turns around, goes back, pulls him out of the ice water, takes him to shore, builds a fire, begins to warm him up, and Dirk is recaptured. He's put back in prison. Dirk is executed in May of 1569, May 16th. He's executed by being burned at the stake. Could Dirk have gotten away? Oh yeah, for sure. Kingdom people means that our lives reflect kingdom values. He could have run away. I mean, absolutely, because let's face it, he got arrested for, over baptism. Dirk's doing God's work. It's not like he's this guy who, I don't know, he killed some people and he finally got caught. He's baptizing people. He's put into prison. He's always going to die. He could have gotten away. But what would his life have been reflecting as he ran through the snow if he could hear the man drowning, yelling, please help, anybody please help, if he had kept running? What would the values that he said he believed really mean if he kept on running? You see, as it is, Dirk's life, his values seem to reflect another guy that I've heard about a long time ago who believed in people, who was arrested for doing nothing wrong, who died on a cross so that we may live. How does your life reflect the kingdom? How does your life reflect Jesus? So the brethren in Christ are a kingdom people, which is why it's so important for us to be talking about what is the kingdom? What is the picture that we're being given? We can't just toss this word around. That's not good enough. We need to know what this means. We need to have some sort of understanding. We need to grapple with it. So to start us off this morning, I want to look at the Lord's Prayer. You can put that on the screen if you can do that for me. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us of our sins, just as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Lead us away from temptation. Deliver us from evil. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, teacher, Father, tell us how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray this way. This is right out of Matthew 6. I want you to look at that third line. When we pray this prayer, as I'm sure many of us have prayed, it's probably taught to us in the Sunday school a long time ago. We're familiar with it. We've said it. We've heard it. We've been in a church service where everybody kind of stood up and said it together maybe. We've said these words, may your kingdom come. Do we know what we're asking for? Have we really thought about what it means to ask for God's kingdom to come? 
I mean, that word is talking about all the stuff we tend to think of as up there. And we're asking for it to come down here. God's kingdom on earth will change everything. When we say this prayer, when we say these words, we shouldn't be taking it lightly. We're asking for the world around us to be reshaped in the image of something that it currently is not. When we do his will, we are slowly drawing it in a moment, in a space, in a place to earth. God's kingdom is present. Jesus is saying, hey, Okay, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. Let me show you about how that works. Let me tell you a story about what it looks like when the kingdom is here. Do we understand that the kingdom has something to say to all of us? It has something to say about the way you treat one another. The person sitting next to you this morning, it has something to say about that. It has something to say about how you spend your money. It has something to say about your marriages. The kingdom has something to say about everything, and if we really want it here, it's going to change everything. So we can't take these words lightly. Again, this is why we need to talk about the kingdom. We need to understand what Jesus is talking about, because we're asking for his kingdom to come. Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way. May your kingdom come. So let's look at our first parable this morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to go to Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9. This is called the, the parable of the sower. It's called uh, the parable of the four soils. It says this. A farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came out and ate them. Other seeds fell on a shallow soil with underlying rock. The plants sprang up quickly, but they soon wilted beneath the hot sun and died because the roots had no nourishment in the shallow soil. Other seeds fell among thorns that shot up and choked out the tender blades, but some seeds fell on fertile soil and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone who was willing to hear should listen and understand." When it comes to reading parables, one tip or trick that I try to tell people is, does anybody remember magic eye posters? You know what I'm talking about? Do you remember magic eye posters? Somebody raise their hand, tell me. I asked this this morning at Country Meadows and they're all like, oh no, I'm not sure what that is. Magic eye posters were these things that like hang in the classroom, you get books of them, and they look like a whole bunch of like geometric shapes in a picture. And if you looked like directly at them, all you see are these shapes. But if you kind of like stood back and, and you didn't look right at it, all of a sudden a shape appeared, like a bunny rabbit or something kind of behind it. Kind of these neat little eye tricks you play, right? With Jesus' parables, there's always a meaning to the parable. But if we get too invested in the details, we miss the meaning. We almost have to stand back and look at the whole thing and let our eyes adjust until the bunny rabbit appears behind the shape. Okay? With the parable of the sower, one of the first things that I often hear people do is they want to know who the farmer is. Who's the farmer in this story? Who's throwing the seed? Is that God? Is that me? Is that, am I supposed to be throwing seed? And I'm going to tell you right now, if, if that's where you're at, you're missing the point. The point of Jesus' story is actually the soils. What we need to be paying attention to is what Jesus is saying about soil here. So Jesus talks about four soils. And here's the cool thing about this parable. 
Jesus explains this parable for us. If you read a little further from where I had you open your Bible, Jesus actually goes through a large explanation of what this whole thing means. And the disciples come to him and they say, well, why do you talk in parables? If people can't understand it, why do you talk in parables? And he says, well, for those that have ears, they'll hear. For those that don't, they won't. And you're like, oh, thanks. Thanks for clearing that up, Jesus. Um, What he's saying is, if you really care, you'll spend the time looking at the magic eye poster until the bunny appears. If you really care, if you really want to know, you'll spend the time digging into the story until you get to the truth of what I'm saying in this story. That's why I talk in parables. And he says, to you who wants to know, you I'm going to open the mysteries for. And he goes into this explanation about each soil. So I'm not going to read that passage. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what he says about each soil. There's seed that falls on a hard path. Now, if you have a garden or you grew up on a farm or maybe you have a farm now, you know that if you plant seed, you don't want to walk right where you planted the seed. Especially as seedlings come up, you don't want to step on them, right? You break them, you kill them. So you walk in the same place over and over and over next to where you planted the seed. And the more you walk on it, the more hard packed down that earth becomes. It's almost a miracle if seed falls on that hard packed ground and it takes root. It can get into the ground and it has life spring up. But more commonly what happens is that the seed can't work its way into the ground. It stays on top the hard packed soil. And so the birds come and the birds take the seed. They eat it. It's gone. It never had a chance to live. What I want to do is I want to tell you to beware of the birds. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about these moments that you experience God. When God shows up in the middle of a conversation you're having with a friend. When your daughter or your grandson has a, has a child. You hold that child for the first time and you're just, you're crying and you're so thankful for what God has given this gift. Think about when God shows up in your life There are things and people that try and rob it away. I want you to beware of the birds. But I also need to tell you it's not about the birds. It's about the soil. See, hard-packed soil, it's like a heart that's been hardened. It's like one that can't hear the truth because it doesn't want to. It's like when a seed is thrown its direction, it bounces right off because, I don't know, it's been hurt too many times because it's built up a resistance to it, because you don't want this thing that looks like something that doesn't actually reflect Jesus. You have a hard heart. Birds will do what birds do. If I was a bird and I saw seed laying somewhere, I would eat it as well. It's about the soil. Are you hardened? Do you have a hard heart? Is there something in your life right now that you're like, yeah, I got a hard heart. Not to God, but I got a hard heart to something else, to this person. They hurt me. They said this thing. It's a hard heart. I'll tell you right now, a hard heart for any relationship that you have will affect your relationship with God. So even if you feel like you don't have a hard heart for God, but you have a hard heart somewhere else, you've got to let those walls come down because that hard soil it's going to affect seed that could be taking root. I hear something else to point out. When Jesus talks about these four soils, this is the only soil that doesn't have life. This is the only soil that the seed bounces off and never takes root. 
don't have a hard heart. A sower is out sowing seed and he throws some seed and it lands on rocky soil. It's like dirt, but underneath the dirt is rock. And a plant takes root, a seed works its way in and a plant comes out, but because there's rock just under the soil, the roots can't get very deep. Think back to the last time that you weeded your garden or your flower bed. You came across a weed that you pulled out and it came right out. <laughs> that was easy. Why do they say weeding so hard? And you toss it to the side. And you get to this next one and you're down there and you're trying to pull it out and just like breaking and ripping and you can't get to it. So you go to the garage and get your gloves on and two hands in there trying to get this thing out. Nothing's going. You get a jackhammer. It's not coming out. You know, you're... <laughs> No, you don't, okay, you don't do that. But as you, as you try to get this thing out, it, it's breaking apart. You know, the leaves are coming off of this thing. And then finally, all you're left with is like a root. The plant's actually gone, the root's left. And you're like, oh, all right, just cover it with dirt and it looks good, right? That's what we all, we all do it. No one wants to go get a shovel and dig the thing out. We all know that if you don't get the root, the plant's coming back, right? Okay, the seed that falls on the rocky soil can't do that. It can't penetrate the rock. It has a shallow grave, if you will. So when, perse- when persecution comes in the form of a lack of, lack of water, a drought, it doesn't have roots that go down deep enough to draw moisture from the soil. When the sun shines so hot, it burns the plant up. There is no shade. It's, it's kind of like an immature plant. And I think of it as an immature plant because when Jesus tells the story, he talks about how this seed gets in there and this, it grows really fast. You know, it's so close to the surface. The rain and the sun can get to it and feed it and it just pops up. The scripture also tells us that we are known by the fruit of our lives. Our faith is known by the fruit of our lives. I think about this shallow plant. How much fruit can it truly bear? It's so shallow. If it were to bear any fruit, it would fall over. It would fall off. It would never survive. I want you to think about the fruit of your life. The decisions that you've made. Are they the decisions of a mature believer? Someone who really understands what good soil is, who's, who's buried themselves in good soil, has let those nutrients come in and give them strength. The, the roots are so deep that even if you wanted to pull that thing out, it's not going that it will withstand the storms, it will withstand the persecution that will come. Is that you or are you a plant that has been planted in shallow, rocky soil? Because those plants wilt. It's too easy to say, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to do the work of finding good soil. I'm happy in the shallow. I've got enough Jesus. I've got enough spirituality If I go any deeper, I know more is going to be required of me. Yes, you are right. More will be required. But when the sun shines or the rain doesn't fall, you won't wither up and die either. Let's not be a people who are shallow. Let's be a people who are willing to go deep. That means deep in the word. It means deep with Jesus. It means deep in your personal life. But it means deep with each other too. Because community is a part of this thing. A kingdom is very small if there's only one person in it. We are blessed to sit in a room full of people. 
Let us go deep with one another. Let us be people who dig in and are firmly rooted. That if Satan came along and tried to rip that plan out, we're going to give him a heck of a fight. The sower out sowing seed and some falls on a thorny ground. And the seed gets in. It's like, Jesus says, it's like those who hear and accept the good news, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares of life and the wealth of this world. Again, there is life. There's true life. There's a plant that springs up. But there are thorns choking it out. There are thorns making it so that it's only ever going to grow so big. And it's not going to be able to grow other plants because the thorns are in the way. It represents people who are caught up in the cares of this world and wealth. We chase that almighty dollar, that next raise. And we're keeping up with the Joneses down the street. Well, they got this, and so now I have to as well. Those are thorns. They choke us out. We say that we're people who are a kingdom people, but we've allowed these thorns to find good growth next to us. We've allowed them to wrap themselves around us. And we've said, you know what? This is as far as I want to go. I don't mind not getting bigger. The thorns, they're not that prickly. Yes, they are. They're killing you. And you may not even know it. They're strangling you. And you can't even tell because all around you is thorns and now it feels normal. But there are thorns in your life and they're choking you. You're caught up in stuff that isn't of the kingdom. Is this you? If we're not careful, we end up being people who call ourselves Christians and look nothing like Jesus. But there's a fourth soil. Because a sower is out sowing seeds, and some of the seed falls in good soil. Have you ever had good soil in your hands? You look down at it. It doesn't have rocks and pebbles and all sorts of other stuff in it. It's just pure soil, good topsoil. When it runs through your fingers, it almost feels like silk. I mean, good topsoil actually has a better smell to it. The Bible tells us. We should smell like God. There's a flavor to people who follow God. Good soil has a certain flavor. And when the seed falls in the good soil, it springs up. And it's not just one little plant, but 10 and 20 and 30, 60, 100 times the one plant. It yields in a massive crop. You understand what Jesus is saying here? Not only should we be in good soil, not only should we look for good soil, but when you're in good soil, we yield a crop. Remember last week we talked about the person who buries their head in the sand? We talked about the person who buries the talents? Being satisfied with one little plant is like burying your talents. The farmer's looking for a crop. How amazing is that? When we're in good soil, it grows everywhere. I want to say too though, the parable of the four soils is not a weapon for you to use. Parables, the teachings of Jesus, this thing called Christianity is not a weapon 
for anyone to use. I don't want to hear anyone saying, oh, you know them, oh, that's the rocky soil. Oh, we should see the thorns in so-and-so's life. If you're concerned about someone else's thorns, you're probably missing your own. If that's the way you read this parable, then I'm going to tell you right now, your heart's twisted. Because it's about you. This parable is meant for you to reflect on you. Look inward. What soil are you in? What fruit is coming from your life? Are you hard-hearted? You're not open to hearing things. Are there thorns you've allowed to spring up all around you? Are you in good soil and there's just plants coming everywhere? Where are you? It is meant for self-reflection. It is not meant to be a weapon. What needs to change? The way that you think about yourself? Because that can be thorny. The way you look at yourself, that you think that you're just a person who's full of mistakes and you have nothing to offer? That's a lie told to you by Satan. Every person in this room has something to offer. Every person's story, every mistake you've made, every triumph you had is a story that somebody needs to hear because you're going to bring them along and you're going to start to grow other plants around you. The thorns disappear. Other plants begin to rise. Every person has something to offer. So what needs to change? The way that you treat others? God help us, but are you a bird for somebody else? Snatching away that joy? that chance that they just had to experience Jesus? How do you treat other people? How about the way you view God? Is there something going on in the picture you have of God that's just not letting you have that good soil? It's not letting you grow? You can't get over this thing? Your heart's just too hard about it? What soil are you planted in? Jesus says, This is why I tell stories, because people see what I do, but they don't really see. They hear what I say, but they don't really hear. They don't understand, because they don't want to. Let us not be a people who are satisfied with that. Let us dig in. Let's do the hard work of looking at our lives. So I got one more parable for you this morning. We're going to end on this parable. It's in Mark chapter 4, if you want to turn there, verses 26 to 29. It's a short one. It's beautiful, though. It says this. Jesus says, here's another illustration of what the kingdom of God looks like. A farmer planted seeds in a field, and then he went on with his other activities. As the days went by, the seeds sprouted and grew without the farmer's help because the earth produces crop on its own. First, a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle. Spiritual growth is a beautiful thing. The plant slowly growing, slowly poking its way through the surface of the dirt, getting bigger and getting stronger, and more plants rising around it to the point where there's a massive crop that the farmer comes in and harvests. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a mysterious thing. There is no equation that you can plug yourself into and say, well, this plus this minus this plus this, put this in parentheses, multiply by this, and suddenly you have good spiritual growth. It doesn't exist. I'll tell you right now. There's no three steps to this or eight steps to that. But you know what you can do? You can focus on the soil that you've been planted in. You can try and make sure that there's no thorns that are going to come up around you. You can try and make sure that that soil isn't hard. It's open for the seed to work its way in. 
when you feel like you're growing, when there are others coming up around you, that's when you start looking at the big picture of the kingdom. Not looking at other people's soil and pointing things out. That's when you start going, you know what, there's a whole community at this Kanoi BIC church. A whole community of people. How can I come on a Sunday morning and I can make sure that the soil that is here is cultivated in a way that people come in and they grow, that they blossom, that the seed works its way in? Are the things that I can be doing on a Sunday morning, the way that I treat other people, the way that I talk to them, is there a way that I could serve maybe that's going to help cultivate this place for growth? And as you continue to grow and you realize, oh, there is a thorn coming up right here beside me oh, I'm feeling a little hard in this thing, then you do the work. You dig down deep. You're not digging on somebody else's soil. You're not calling them out about their hard heart. You're not talking about their thorns. You're doing it for yourself. There's another sermon on accountability some other day we'll talk about because accountability is a real thing. And I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking accountability doesn't exist. But for the sake of this parable, what Jesus is saying, hey, it's a beautiful, beautiful mystery. But what soil are you planted in? These parables are meant for you to reflect on your walk, on your life. We're going to enter into communion. Communion is a time for us to reflect on our life, reflect on the kind of soil that we're in, to reflect on what's been going on in our relationships our relationship with Jesus. It's a time for us to drop all the junk and focus on that cross. Because way back before this timeline existed, there was a guy who hung on a tree to give us new life, to break us, to give us the power to break away from sin. And when he left, he said, I'm leaving you a helper. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. And he says, it's like me. It's like having me here with you. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to break the chains, to break the habits, to walk away from things. So when we come into the space of communion, we think through our life. We think through our relationship with Jesus. We remember what's been done for us, what's been given to us in love and care. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.